Amen. You may be seated. You can also open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 8, as we continue in our elder series through Psalms. So last year I was third in lineup for, for this summer elder series. This year again I'm, I'm third in lineup for this summer elder series. Uh, which really makes me think that not only am I the middle child of my own family, but I am on the, the elder board as well. It also gives two weeks for us to redeem ourselves if I completely flop right now. All right, Psalm 8. The Holy Spirit writes, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens to the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to grow in truth today as we open your word. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is the truth. Help us, Father, to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We pray your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Teach us now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, who is the word of God. Amen. Weni, widi, wiki. It's a Latin phrase coined by Julius Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered. I'm sure most of us are, are familiar with this phrase. The phrase itself was paraded on a placard after Caesar had triumphed over Pontus, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, in 46 B.C., now, Julius Caesar, he was born in 100, 100 B.C., and he was assassinated in 44 B.C. As a general, Caesar helped Rome grow in size and wealth by conquering Gaul, which is modern-day France, and Spain. As leader of the Roman Republic, Julius Caesar, uh, Caesar uh, increased the size of the Senate to represent more Roman citizens, he established the 12-month, 365-day calendar, which we still use today, um, and he granted Roman citizenship to all those living under Roman rule, which Paul took advantage of. Though Julius Caesar never actually held the title of emperor, he forged a new Rome. He created a new world for Rome. In Psalms 8, we find ourselves in a similar picture, or should we say a similar tune, as we are witnessing a creating ruler. As Pastor Zach and Pastor Brett have already both illustrated, the Psalms are songs. 
And you can even be clued into this by glancing at your Bible, and you can see how it's laid out with the lines and indentations. This particular psalm, Psalms 8, is, as we know by the superscript, it is a psalm of David. And this is a hymn of praise, and even more so, it is a hymn of creation praise. David is praising right from the first line, which is then reprised at the end of the song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, if you've been in church long enough, I'm sure you can appreciate how difficult it was for me to study this passage without that praise course raging through my head. Everyone who's laughing knows what I'm talking about. Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I think you have reason to give thanks before the Eucharist. Um, If you do know what I'm talking about, then I get it if you don't remember anything I said, because in your head you're singing, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. So that's fair. Okay. Um, Oh, Lord, our Lord, or oh, Yahweh, our Lord, as I originally read, um, Lord is in all capitals as a way for the translators to uh, illustrate how, uh, to illustrate that this is not how we usually use the word Lord. And all capitals uh, for this specific translation of Lord is consistent throughout our English versions of the Old Testament. I'm particularly reading from the English Standard Version. Um, The all capital version of Lord is referring to Y-H-W-H, or as we would commonly add the vowels back in and pronounce Yahweh. 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 Thanks, Jacob. You see, with Judaism, in an effort to avoid breaking the third commandment, Uh, which is, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, Exodus 20, verse 7. They removed the vowels and would not pronounce the name. Just last week, um, I was having a text conversation with Pastor Brett, and he actually sent me a picture of a message uh, from a rabbi he works with. And in the message, the rabbi didn't type God. He typed G slash D, or G dash D. So it's still prevalent today. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, it is the name by which God revealed himself to us. I am who I am, the covenant God who brought them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. So listen as I read from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. The Holy Spirit writes, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So in that passage, and it may be the same for you in your Bible, but in my Bible, the ESV, the editors of the ESV place uh, a note there. Um, They place a footnote, and I'm just going to read from that. The word Lord, this is the ESV editors, when spelled with capital letters, stands for the divine name YHWH, which is here connected with the verb Hayah, or to be, in verse 14. So now before you check out on me with all of this talk about capital letters and missing vowels, I want you to track, because I am actually, believe it or not, headed somewhere with this. So turn with me now to John chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 54. So the book of John, chapter 8.
Beginning in 50, verse 54, the Holy Spirit writes. Now remember, two weeks ago, Pastor Zach read to us that all scripture is breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit writes in verse 54 of John chapter 8. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Israelites would not even pronounce God's name. And here's Jesus saying that he is God. I am is what he calls himself. Psalms 8 is all about Jesus. O Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this brings us to our first of three points. I got three points today. Um, Nice, clean. Pastor Kevin would be happy. They alliterate. Um, So the point number one, Christ the creator. Christ the creator. Psalms 8 is a hymn laden with imagery of creation. Within the first verse alone, heaven and earth are mentioned. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And you set your glory above the heavens. How can we not think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what here in Psalms 8 is being tied to the earth and heavens? It's the majesty of Jesus' name and his glory. According to the reformer John Calvin, the name of God here in Psalms 8, uh, verse 1, should be understood to include all of God's characteristics and perfections insofar as how God has revealed himself to us. Everything about who God is makes his name majestic. God's being alone demands majesty, but he has specifically set his glory above the heavens. His glory being set above the heavens is purposeful. Um, The heavens are the highest height, and God sets his glory above it. The glory of Jesus is infinitesimally unmatched. Verse 3 picks up on the glory of Christ in the beauty of the heavens. David writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. In this, we hear echoes of Genesis 1-1 again and also Genesis 1 verses 14 through 19. Listen as I read. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 
There is sovereign purpose in God's design. The heavenly bodies all have an appointed place. God gives order. He corrects. He arranges chaos. And he does it beautifully. Pay attention to the words of the psalmist. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. The language here is, is describing like that of a sculptor. Labor is a labor of exactness. It's a labor of purpose. When you go to a ride at Disney World, even when you're standing in queue, everything that is around you is on purpose. It is organized and meticulously planned. It's artistic. If there's a crack in the wall, then someone painted a crack in the wall exactly where and how it appears. If there's a cobweb in a corner, someone placed that cobweb there by hand in the exact park as planned for the park attender's experience. Joe Rode, who was a Disney Imagineer, who he, he's like a head designer for Animal Kingdom, um, he talks about designing the African town of Harambee in, in the Animal Kingdom, and he says, quote, we've created this place that is so obsessively realistic. You can really sit with someone from Africa and talk about what Africa looks like, because I'll tell you, I can't count the number of people from Africa we've taken out into our fake Africa who said, man, this looks just like where I'm from, end quote. This is very much the idea that the psalmist is getting at when he writes the work of your fingers. And it's poetic. We are in the Psalms. This is the genre. We must remain aware of that. And it's descriptive. The glorious, beautiful creation was not only meant for us to enjoy God's work, but it is also meant to be our work. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And the psalmist points to every inch of God's creation. We have dominion over the sheep and the oxen. And oh yeah, everything else on the land. We have dominion over the birds. Check, dominion over them as well. And fish too. That, that should cover everything, right? You would think. But then the psalmist goes on even further whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So even stuff that we don't even know about yet. Everything, everything, all of creation was made subject, all creation God has made subject to man. All of God's work in creation is Christ's work in creation. And our call to worship this morning, Pastor Mike read for us from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and John is clearly stating this. All of creation was made through Jesus, and there was not anything made that wasn't made by Jesus. He made all of it, the sheep and the oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds, the fish, and all that passes along the paths of the seas, the heavens and all that fill them, the earth and man. John chapter 1 also tells us in verse 14 that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And this brings us to our second point. Our first point was Christ the creator. Point number two, Christ the carnate. Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh and became a human man. Verse four, Psalm eight, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now this verse illustrates that man is fallen in sin. Uh, the verse itself is an example of Hebrew parallelism. Uh, the Psalms are, are full of this poetic form, as well as other books in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, essentially, with parallelism, the idea 
the same idea is reiterated in two lines. Uh, the first line makes the statement, and the second line rephrases it. Uh, and each part of the first line parallels with that second line. Uh, man parallels with the son of man. Mindful parallels with cares for him. The usage of man is the Hebrew word enosh. Um, you'll need to confer with Pastor Al or Pastor Brett on, on the correct pronunciation, but that's the word, enosh, or literally man. Poetically, uh, it refers to humanity in their frail existence, the depravity of man. However, this is being contrasted with the phrase son of man, which the son of man in this context refers to man at his best state. So, as, so far as the immediate historical context of the psalm, it is referring to everyone, man at his best, man at his worst. And it's very much like the end of verse 8 with whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And that's beautiful, and that's true. And it's unfathomable why God would care for us as he does. But I'm sure the specific phrase, son of man, caused you to pause. I know this because it, it caused me to pause when I, was, when I was studying for this. And it caused me to want to jump up and shout the answer that every child in Sunday school wants to shout, Jesus, for every question. That's the answer. And I think that's the appropriate response for one, because Jesus calls himself the son of man. But even more so from the very next verse that David writes, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We read verses four through six and it rings familiar. Like we've heard this somewhere else. And that's because we have. Um, if you look in Hebrews chapter two, you can turn there and see this with me. The book of Hebrews chapter 2, look in verses 4 through 6, or oh, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews 2, yeah, beginning in verse 6, the Holy Spirit writes, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Amen. It's basically the same. The author of Hebrews is quoting this from Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Jesus was made lower and crowned with glory and honor, and Jesus has been given dominion over all. Jesus was made lower in his incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, comparing these, these two, Psalm 8 and Hebrews, to, it may bring up a question about translation decisions. And that question is, what does the psalmist mean by heavenly beings? Now, the ESV, as I just read, translates this as heavenly beings. Some, it's actually the only one I could find that does this. Some, like the KJV and NIV, they translate Psalms 8 instead of heavenly beings, they say angels. 
Others like the CSB, the Geneva Bible, the HCSB, NASB, RSV, and others translate that as God in Psalms 8. The Hebrew word is Elohim. Um, again, pronunciation, go to, go to Pastor Alibret. Um, but Elohim means God. And the ESV editors give this credence in their footnote. Hebrews 2, verse 7, which is quoting from the psalm, translate heavenly beings as angels. If you, if you have a copy of ESV like me and you're looking at Hebrews 2, you would notice there's no footnote about the translation of angels in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 2, 7. The reason is for Hebrews, there's no questioning the translation. The translation is correct. They, they, that's the most accurate translation is the word of angels in Hebrew. Uh, the reason for that is the author of Hebrews is reciting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which at the time this was written, it was the Greek translation of the Bible. Um, so your New Testament writers, that is what they're using. That's what they're most familiar with, the Septuagint. So the Hebrews is reciting from the Septuagint, and the Septuagint translates Psalms 8 uh, as angels. What's interesting is the ESV editors don't make a point of translating Psalms 8.5 as, as angels. It seems like they're trying uh, to be textually faithful in translation of Hebrew, but also uh, torn to bridge that translation uh, of Psalms 8 to the book of Hebrews translation from the Septuagint of angels. I believe a better translation for Psalm 8 than the ESV has would be God. Um, Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Because this is exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. And it would not discredit Hebrews 2 since the author of Hebrews is making a completely different point than the author of the psalm. Hebrews is making a point about Jesus' superiority to angels. Whereas David, and, and sorry, Hebrews is doing that and he's also quoting the Septuagint from memory. He's recalling it. Uh, David, however, is concerned with God's sovereignty over creation and history. Also, I think it would be a more natural translation uh, since, the, since the verbiage in Psalm 8 is, is echoing that of Genesis 1. Uh, in Genesis 1, 26 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The characters are God and man. Man is made in God's image and likeness, but man is not God. Man is lower than God, and Christ made himself lower to redeem his creation and conquer all. Christ the carnate. Point number three, Christ the conqueror. So we have Christ the creator, Christ the carnate, Christ the conqueror for you note takers. Verse 2, David writes, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God's enemies are silenced by the voices of children. I want you to hear this quote from William A. Vangamiran from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on this verse in Psalm 8. It's, it's too good. I don't want to try and rephrase it and, and water down the point he's making. Vangamiran writes, The sound of children is concrete evidence of God's fortress on earth. See? <laughs> it's my children. <laughs> the continuity of the human race is God's way of assuring the ultimate 
glorification of an earth populated with, with new humanity. The sound, sorry, the sound of oppression is silenced by the babbling and chatter of children. What a contrast, what a king, end quote. There will be new creation. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Jesus is ruling as king now at the right hand of the Father. Pastor Mike pulling that double duty, triple duty, uh, led us in reciting the Apostles' Creed this morning, uh, where we confess together that Jesus ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The earth will be resurrected with all the saints, and Jesus will eternally rule his people in new creation. Psalms 8, verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Revelation 21, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Adam fell into sin, and now we are all conceived in sin. We are all born sinners. And because we are all sinners, we have earned God's unrelenting wrath in eternal hell. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. But Jesus... Jesus lowered himself and became man. He became the new Adam representing humanity and did what Adam could not. Jesus was tempted and sinned, sinned not. Jesus lived a life entirely without sin. He was the only human to do so. Then Jesus paid for the sin of every believer of all of history and time yet to come as he bore God's wrath on a Roman cross. Jesus took the punishment that you earned if you're believing in him. Then Jesus died. He gave up his life. He was dead for three days. Sunday morning, he walked out of the tomb conquering death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus never sinned. So death crumbles under his power. Jesus ascended as king and is now sitting at the right hand of his father. He will return to judge and make all things new. And for those who are in Christ, eternity will be spent serving that king. That's the gospel. That is the good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that if your faith is not in Jesus, is not in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you are destined for eternal damnation and hell. I beg you, if you're not following Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, it's the kid. If you're not following Jesus, then right now repent and place your faith in Jesus. As Pastor Brett preached to us last week, Kiss the sun. Submit your life to Christ. So what does that look like for us? Well, the Reformed tradition ex explains and teaches us that faith is comprised of three facets. 
The first facet is knowledge. You must know the gospel. Um, Everyone who is here now has been offered that knowledge. The knowledge that the Bible tells us that man is sinful and in need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. The second facet of faith is assent. So not only, not only do you need to know what the gospel is, but you must actually think that that gospel message is true, that it's factual, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and that on the third day he rose again from the dead. You must assent to the validity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But even that's not enough, for the demons believe that and they tremble. The third, facet comprising, uh, the third facet comprising faith is trust. You must trust that that gospel, that Jesus' work, is able to save you from God's judgment. You must submit yourself to Christ. That is the goal. If you want to know more, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Al. Come talk to Pastor Mike after church if you need. I promise you there is literally nothing more important. Uh, not family, not work. Not money, not hobbies, you name it. This is about life and death. The first question in the New City Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. And if you take Jesus by faith, you can belong to God. Julius Caesar created a new Rome. Jesus Christ created everything, including Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had dominion over the entirety of of Rome, the whole Roman Empire. Jesus has dominion over every atom in existence. Julius Caesar conquered Spain and France. Jesus conquered death. Julius Caesar is considered great by history, but Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. We are great sinners, and yet you are mindful of man. You care for man. Your great care caused you to send your one and only son, Christ Jesus, to put on flesh, to live the sinless life we never could and to take on the deluge of your wrath, which we deserved. Father, if there are any here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus for their salvation, we pray your spirit breaks their heart with your word, that the Holy Spirit takes their heart of stone and melts it into a heart of flesh. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong to you, Father, and we can only belong if we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Prepare our hearts as we come to your table. Let us reflect and rejoice as we take of the bread and the wine, remembering it was Jesus' body that was broken, and it was his blood that was poured out. And celebrate our conquering king. Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We pray this now by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. And come now.